Even when I have the band out with me, I'll find, I'll like go into the bathroom with a glass and I'll take a drink and I'll look at myself in the mirror and be like, now don't fuck this up and have fun. And then I go out and I play the show. So that's kind of how, that's kind of how it goes for me. And it's every show. I'll say that I'll give myself like the brief Vince Lombardi pep talk and, uh, and then I'll go out and I'll sing for people. You know, but I'm always, I'll always have a drink on up your vocal cords. Is that what happens? Some people would say it doesn't. I would like to say I'm living proof that it does. The intersection of good drinks, good music, and good times. This is Hops and Spirits Bar Conversations. We have one of my favorite episodes for you this week. I really enjoyed my interview with country artist Matt Koziel. He was a great chat. We shared some good drinks. Um, And like I said, it was just a fun chat. You're going to want to stick around and not miss that. But before we get to that, Tasting Notes this week is with Chef Allison Settle. And she talks about derby parties and get-togethers because here in Kentucky where we are, we know that those are coming soon as it's derby season. Uh, But also people all over the world love to host parties. And so uh, she gives you some great tips. So let's not waste any more time and get into the show. Did you know Hops and Spirits is more than just this podcast? Check out hopspirits.com for our latest episode release, past episodes, interviews with interesting folks in the alcohol industry, and so much more. Just go to hopspirits.com. Feel free to wait until this podcast is done. Joining us again here on Tasting Notes, she's a 2022 James Beard Best Chef semifinalist, a Sullivan University brand influencer. You can find her pop-up events around Greater Louisville. I'm not sure why I still need to read this because I should know this by heart now, but please welcome in Allison Settle. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I I, I always enjoy talking food with you and then the cool uh, drink ideas that you bring to the table as well, because it's what it's all about here on Tasting Notes is all these cool ideas that people can do and they can actually do them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just think all the education in the world for food and drinks, I, it's my passion. So I have a lot of fun with it, but I, it's just so fascinating to think about. Well, and we have a fun one. And if you're in the Kentucky, greater Kentucky area, or maybe you're a horse racing fan, you know what's coming up here soon, and that's the Kentucky Derby. For those that maybe don't celebrate, uh, we'll call it springtime fun <laughs> fun for them, as hopefully the weather, weather is nice where, where they are. But with the Kentucky Derby, I always am curious about what people can do to make it fun and maybe different, because we always kind of hear about the same typical things, but maybe how can we spice those up? Um, maybe pun intended, maybe not. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a yearly celebration. It's a huge part of our daily lives here in this area, um, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, even for people who are working in the restaurant industry, like Derby can be a cruel mistress, but at the same time, it's the energy is just palpable and you're, you're going to have some of the most fun celebratory nights uh, in restaurant kitchens during Derby when you feel like you've really like climbed a mountain and accomplished your, you know, Oak service. Um, but yeah, I've been thinking a lot about, about how to make Derby special um, with me not being in a restaurant this year, I'm going to actually be able to be a real person and experience Derby. And so I've been thinking a lot about like how I want to, um, you know, celebrate for the first time. I've been living in the city for over 10 years and I finally get to do it. Um, one of my favorite things to do, uh, any time of the year, but especially now when the, the weather is really mild and beautiful and everything's so green and tons of flowers, I love to eat outside. Al fresco eating, I think is 
a really undervalued um, situation in the American household. Of course, we all have our patios and like margaritas at the Mexican restaurant or whatever, but really uh, take the time to enjoy your own backyard. Um, maybe start a little herb garden and that way you can have your cocktails and your sprigs of mint for your mint juleps straight out of your garden while you, you sit on the back porch and listen to the birds sing. I think uh, as much time spent outdoors is, is really good for your, your mind and your body and can be inspiring to food. Um, actually, at Sullivan, we have this really incredible archive uh, from the Courier Journal. It was They were cleaning out offices and they had all of these recipe cards, like the three by fives, you know, that your grandmother had, um, file cabinets full of them. And so it's an incredible resource. And when you said you wanted to talk about the Derby, I decided to go back into the archives at Sullivan University and find some vintage cocktails that can be a lot of fun. I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah. So the, the first one is, uh, oh, the, it's called Regent Punch, and it's a very fruity cocktail, um, and it's one that you want to make in a batch. This, I, I can submit the recipe to you uh, if you'd like, but it's a giant vat of lemon, orange, uh, pineapple juice. This particular recipe actually said to put, like, tidbits, like the pineapple pieces, in the cocktail, I'll let you decide if you want to do that or not. <laughs> and then it also had rum and bourbon. And I just love the idea of this refreshing kind of tropical um, warming cocktail. And for an extra little punch, believe it or not, right before service, they say to add a quart of champagne. So a <laughs> little, little, uh, little bubbly kick there. Yeah. And I'm sure it's pretty strong. So you forewarned, be forewarned. <laughs> Um, but I love the idea in the Regent Punch. That just sounds so fancy. But it's a crowd. It sounds derby. It sounds spring. Yeah, it does. It does. And it be a crowd-pleasing thing. Have your party outside with a big vat of this incredibly boozy but delicious punch. And then the one that I was really excited about was called a Derby Fizz. And I have not heard this before. Or if I have, it didn't register but this is a shaken cocktail with egg white. It had lemon juice, uh, powdered sugar, orange curacao, bourbon, and an egg white shaken over ice in a highball glass with soda water on top. And I just love the idea of this uh, really neutral colored uh, cocktail with a nice head of the fizzy egg white on top and... Um, of course, you've got your bourbon and you've got the wonderful mouthfeel of the bubbles. I just, and this is, this was published in the thirties. So these are 1930s. So you're taking it back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These were specifically listed as Derby cocktails in 1937. I, I love that. And, and, you know, obviously mint juleps are, are, are a big thing around Derby time. Maybe a way to elevate that above the normal, typical one. Well, there's a million different ways that you could you could go with that. Anything that goes with mint is going to be probably pretty good in a mint julep. I really love uh, making syrups with uh, strawberries this time of year. Strawberries are popping off. 
You can get them at the farmer's market or anywhere, and they're going to be fresh and delicious and sweet because they're in season right now. Make yourself a simple syrup with that, just 50% water, 50% sugar, and just throw some chopped up strawberries in there. You can muddle them. You could even leave them in there to have sort of this textural drink. Boba tea is like getting pretty popular these days um, and fruit slushies and that sort of thing. Um, so people are, are going to be more accustomed to strange mouthfeels in cocktails and, uh, yeah, strawberry and mint. Um, last time we talked about a pea cocktail, you could totally do peas, um, with bourbon. Um, just whatever flavor you enjoy with your mint, think about your mint desserts, um, and just, and just have fun with it. Try things, build a bar that is like a pantry in your house. You know, you can come up with a lot of different meals and ingredients with a well-stocked pantry. Think about your bar as your pantry. Um, make lots of cool syrups, get your spices and um, liquors and just experiment. Have a little workspace next to your bar and just put things together and try them and, and see, see what sticks. You might come up with something uh -huh. pretty unique. I, I love that, and, and I'm excited to to now host a, a derby get together and, and try a few of these things. And, and as as always, Allison, I, I appreciate the knowledge because you always make things fun, and it makes me feel like I have a chance to actually pull these off. <laughs> totally, totally doable and a lot of fun. Check out Hops and Spirits on social media at Hop Spirits, all one word, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find Hops and Spirits on YouTube and at hopspirits.com. Joining us here for our conversation, he's a country artist, songwriter. His latest deluxe album, Wild Horse Barrel Age, is out now. Welcome in, <laughs> Matt Koziel. Did I say it right? Hey, yes, you did. Ciao, thanks right. for having me. <laughs> I yeah. appreciate it. Now, <laughs> now, now we, were, we, we were talking beforehand. How many times do you hear a completely wrong version of your last name? Oh, man. Since I was a kid. I remember we used to get mail uh, at my parents' house and people would like, they'd start adding consonants to it. And it's almost like they just didn't realize that there weren't that many letters involved. And <laughs> like the way people pronounce it, they've gotten Coz Oil, Cozid. They think the O and the L are together. Uh, and somebody just miswrote it, and yeah, it's it's always a treat. One person had an F in there once, and I was like, "You are just way off the mark, my friend." So don't worry about it. <laughs> and then, as you said, uh, someone uh, who who may have had a little liquid and encouragement came up to you after a show and told you to change oh, your name. <laughs> I'm never, I never. I forgot where it was. It might have been like Chattanooga, but it was like a young kid, or it might have been like Athens, Georgia. And some kid comes up to me, he goes, "Bro, change your name." Change your last name. It's too hard. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I was given this way before you were a thought of being born. So no, it's not going to happen. I've had it way too long. I've worked too hard at perfecting how to say it myself. So no way. <laughs> you know? uh, well, and it, it's you. It's you. You don't want to give up you. And uh, nah. I can tell from uh, your glass, if, you, if you're watching the podcast, you, you can see that. Uh, this is Bar conversation. So uh, what's in your glass? Mm. What are you drinking tonight? So right now I pulled, I have Russell single barrel. So Russell Ooh. reserve single barrel. Yeah. This was, it was my birthday about a week or so ago. And some, I've had well, this happy belated before. birthday. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Um, I had a buddy have this, I had found a bottle of EH Taylor and then I wound up sharing that with a few, uh, people on my team. 
But my buddy Jared had got me this. He lives up in Bardstown. He brought this down to, for nice. the old birthday. So yeah, this is a good one. Obviously, it's good. There's it. not that much. There's not that much in it. Well, yeah. you're doing what you're supposed to do with it. You're enjoying it yeah, and sharing. That's right. We don't collect here. We drink here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. I've, mm. I've got a little Yellowstone American single malt. Uh, right are you a fan of single malt, or are you kind of more whiskey and or rye or anything like that? I'm more of a bourbon fan. There's a few ryes I like. I like Michter's rye. That was one I was always very surprised with, and um, uh, maybe a few others. But I have a bottle of Michter's bourbon in there too, and for like. A relatively inexpensive bottle. It's great, you know. I feel like there's a lot of those that, like my local liquor store, um, where I'm at, uh, you know, I'm on their list, and like we go into the back room and look through them. They have like a certain uh, box. Like it's funny. So they'll have like in the main office, they'll have like their main box, and then if you go in the bathroom of the main office, there's like the specialty box that'll have like Weller <laughs> foolproof and. Um, some bottles of E.H. Taylor. So it's like, we always, I'm like, just take me to the bathroom, show me that box first. And if I don't like anything in there, then we'll go back. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've gotten into, I'll, I'll get some cool bottles here and there. And then just like, if it's an everyday, like a Woodford, a double oaked Woodford is great. Um, I started picking this up once in a while, but I don't get it just cause you know, it's on the, it's not on the high end time, but for like an everyday bourbon, it's a little on the high end. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm usually going between that like 30 to 45 50 dollar range i still think long branch is one of like the better banks for the buck in terms of the bourbon world just because it's good even though it's you know when it came out i remember nobody wanted to try it because like 40 bucks for a matthew mcconaughey bourbon and i got it for a friend and we both tried it together and i was like dude we gotta keep buying this because it's gonna go up in price and it still has it so i'm gonna knock on wood that that it doesn't yeah. I was gonna say if people only knew what celebrity bourbons would go for. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, that was the thing is, I was so surprised it was only forty bucks, and then, uh, and I was sure it would jump up to like sixty, seventy dollars, and it stayed consistently forty bucks, and I loved it. You know. Now, are you a high proof guy? You, you, you low proof, or do you kind of yeah. have a sweet spot somewhere in between? I'm a high proof fan. This is one ten. Uh, I think the highest I've had is like one thirty five. That was, I think that was Stag Jr. And uh, I've had the Jack Daniels Barrel Proof, which is, it's good, but I mean, it'll rot your teeth out, man. It is so strong. And it's not that it's bad. And I'm not a huge Jack Daniels fan. Nothing against Jack Daniels. It's just, I and, and I finally did the tour with my dad. I've done most, I've done a lot of the Kentucky, you know, bourbon tours. I've done a lot in Bardstown in the area. I did Buffalo Trace and I did Woodford. Um, but my dad came to town and he was like, man, I'd love to see Jack Daniels. And of course I had like this predisposition of, ah, oh, dad, it's Jack Daniels. We don't need to see that. Um, and you go and you learn, you learn so much. I mean, there's, and they, they really have, they have a bottle and bond that I've been wanting to try. Um, but I bought just because it was there. It was, it, yeah, it was the gold label. I think it was the, the barrel proof and, and it was like 130, 132 proof and it rots your teeth. It's good. It just took me like six months to get through it and at one point <laughs> i was like all right just just keep having it you get rid of it it'll be gone and you can buy some now because i don't try to buy multiple bottles at once i try to have like one or two and get through those and then you know push it out see so. you're, you're you're smart i've got a rye out there that i'm pretty sure is either 132 or 136 yet i haven't opened it yet <clears throat> yeah but I, i'm intrigued by it because i'm like Ooh, that, that's on the high end and I'm a high pick guy too yeah. uh, but I'm like that's even on the high end and for me now 
I think I read somewhere where uh, you have a ritual where you have a glass of bourbon. That's your pre-show ritual. Yeah, I do this. I do this. And I'm going to wind up doing it this weekend, I know, because I always do this, especially when I have acoustic shows. Or even when I have the band out with me, I'll find, I'll like go in the bathroom with a glass and I'll take a drink and I'll look at myself in the mirror and be like, no, don't fuck this up and have fun. And then I go out and I play the show. So that's kind of how, that's kind of how it goes for me. And it's every show. I'll say that I'll give myself like the brief Vince Lombardi pep talk and, uh, and then I'll go out and I'll sing for people, you know, but I'm always, it, I'll always have a drink. Warm on up your vocal cords. Is that what happens? Some people would say it doesn't. I would like to say I'm living proof that it does. You know, some people have said, uh, some professionals have said, that's not going to be good for you in the long run. I'm like, well, I mean, what's that phrase? Uh, we're here for a good time, not a long time. So we'll just see, we'll see how it goes. But I, I say it's, it's every show, especially like if I'm not feeling great or if my allergies are at me, it kind of just gets everything, you know, kind of up and ready. And then, you know, I go out and I'll have one more after I'm done. And I'm like, all right, cool. Time for bed. You know, <laughs> that's, it's a very short process, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I love that. Now, now, obviously, you have that pre-show ritual. Do you have like a ritual for like when you're you're finally home off a tour or something like that? Is there some place oh. you like to go to and escape? Um, when I'm home, it's it's really fun to be home, and this is one of those rare moments where I'm home. Um, if if I'm home, I'm usually just here. Like I have my fire pit in the backyard. I have one of those solo stoves, and I'll sit and I'll make some dinner. Or I'll have. Uh, I smoke a pipe and I have cigars and I'll sit and I'll have a glass, have one of those and then just kind of relax in the yard. And it's fun because I got a bunch of fun neighbors and I hear, you know, kids playing outside, dogs barking. I just kind of sit in the backyard. If I'm traveling and having a little escape, uh, my folks have this like, it's not a cabin. It's a, it's a smaller house out in the woods in northern Pennsylvania, uh, northeast Pennsylvania. So I'll, before I go home to see them, I'll stop there and I'll be there for a couple of days and it's just quiet, you know, and it's a place that once you get past a certain threshold on the interstate, you just stop seeing cars, you stop seeing people <laughs> and then all the roads get a lot smaller and you start seeing like the same houses and the watch out for crossing bear signs. And I'm like, okay, cool. Here we are. And then I get to the house. Um, and it, and it's, it's the kind of quiet that you hear the trees move kind of quiet, you know, and that's, that's if I if I had a, a heaven on earth place, it's that that front porch in that house, and I could just sit and kind of relax. That that sounds like a good spot to to, yeah. to go visit. Now, you, you mentioned you know your your parents and stuff. Did you really know at age like two or three that music was for you? And was it really an Elvis tape that they put in for you? Yeah, yeah. I I I don't remember what the tape was. So there was a couple of things from when I was a child. I remember. Um, we had Saturday morning cartoons and you had the California Raisins. I don't know if you remember them. Mm-hmm. Right. And they would sing like old Motown songs and I would hum along to them. Like I would learn them while watching the show. And, uh, and I would sing Heard It Through the Grapevine and all these, you know, classic Marvin Gaye tunes and things like that, the Temptations. But I remember there was a video and I don't remember who showed it to me. Um, or it might have just been on TV, but I saw Elvis. And it was like, my mother had told me, she's like, you were kind of like glued to the television. And then from there on, I just wanted to see more up. So I had this, we had this one family friend, uh, my grandmother's friend, she would buy me Elvis stuff for Christmas every year. And so I had Elvis ties and puzzles and books. And then there was a, a videotape 
a VHS I got of, um, it was a tour of Graceland given by Lisa Marie Presley. And I, I wore the tape out to the point that you couldn't like, you know, the magnet on the tape just, just wouldn't play. And, uh, yeah, it was like, I, I ne- I saw that and I was like, man, I want to be him so bad, but I didn't know how to be him. I couldn't play guitar. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and uh, I remember my aunt, when I was eight, bought me an electric guitar. Actually, when she first got it, it was a bass guitar. And I remember looking at it at eight years old going, I think there's two strings missing. Because I knew Elvis's had six strings, so I wanted six strings on the guitar. you know. And I wasn't being a spoiled kid. I was just like, Elvis didn't play four strings, he played six. So then she swapped it out, and then I wound up not playing it. I took lessons for like a month. And then I didn't play it again till I was 12. And then it broke. Like the electronics and it broke. And uh, I remember a buddy of mine, John, we were in his basement. And he had an acoustic guitar hanging up on the wall, kind of like this. And I saw it. And we were in middle school. And I said, hey, man, how much you want for that guitar? You know, like bartering already at 12. And he goes, I don't know, man, 10 bucks. I said, cool. And I had 10 bucks just from what I don't even know how I had 10 bucks at 12. I gave him the 10 bucks and I took the guitar. I called my mom and said, Mom, John stole me his guitar for 10 bucks. And she was like, is it okay with his mother? I was like, yeah, it's fine. But I was like, it needs some parts. So we went down to the local <laughs> music store. It needed like strings. It needed a nut. It needed, I forget, it needed something else. So uh, like one of the pegs in an acoustic guitar. So we went down to this local music store in Rawway, New Jersey called Lori Music. That's not there anymore. And, uh, and uh, they, they put it back together for me. And, um, and I remember I played that summer every day on the porch. I picked out, my dad got me an acoustic guitar players magazine. Uh, and it had Danny's song from Loggins and Messina and Daniel from Elton John. Those were the first two songs I ever learned how to play. And I just played them by tabs. I figured out how they worked and I sat every day and I tried to figure it out. And I remember my grandmother at one point was like, it doesn't sound like anything. I'm like, well, I'm trying, you know, but, uh, it was funny because when I was a little kid and I was eight and I took those guitar lessons, I took them for a month. The uh, the guitar teacher was like one of these metalheads. I don't even remember what his name was. But he told my parents, he's like, yeah, your son's probably not going to play guitar. I'm going to be honest. He's, his pinkies are too small. I was eight years old. <laughs> like, of course my pinkies. I'm eight years old, so it doesn't matter. But um, so that kind of like was the progression of when I saw Elvis, I knew I wanted to play guitar like Elvis. Found this guitar. Come to find out years later that that guitar I bought from my buddy was not his to sell. It was his older brother's. And his older brother had asked me, I was like, where's that guitar? That old Yamaha. And then I saw his older brother years later. I was like, you know, I bought that guitar from your brother for like 10 bucks. And he goes, is that how your career started? I said, oh, yeah, man. From from playing a guitar that you didn't know got sold out from under you. So. <laughs> that's a great story. That's, hmm. a, that's, a, that's a fun one to, to uh, share. Yeah. It's, Did and you ever return the favor and get him a guitar? <laughs> no, no. My friend, he's a tattoo artist and his brother, his brother's a music teacher. Um, but I always found, I remember telling him later in life, I was like, yeah, that one guitar, that old Yamaha. And we still have it at the house in Pennsylvania. That, that guitar, it's funny, that old Yamaha sits there in a house that is like consistently 50 degrees. Or like, you know, the, the temperature doesn't change, but it's a house that gets cold, especially in the winter. I could go there any time of year. I maybe have not touched it in six to 10 years. I pick it up. I hit a chord completely in tune. I just put it back in the corner and I go, all right, I'll see you in another 10 years. 
it's it's wild. And it's got like a bunch of shitty stickers and things like that from when I was a teenager. So, but it's still there. You know, it hasn't left that house. I'm sure I if saying, I took it out got... of the house, it would just crumble. <laughs> if I actually left it's the just house, it's preserved there perfectly. Yeah, it's part. It's part of the structure now. But you know, that, mm. those are memories that that you get to look back on and and, and enjoy now. Obviously, Elvis made a big impact on you. Did anyone else along your way make a big impact? Uh, like uh, musician-wise or just people-wise? I guess both. Because, I mean, to me, sometimes it is both that, that makes the impact. Yeah. Uh, musically, um, like artist-wise, I'll say my dad's been a big James Taylor fan since I was a kid. And I hated James Taylor as a teenager. I thought he was the lamest thing I'd ever heard. And I was 13. I, and at the time, I, I had a buddy's dad who was teaching us about Led Zeppelin. And we were listening to pop punk music. And I was listening to, you know, stuff that was cool at the time, big guitars and stuff like that. But I was—I also listened to Aerosmith when I was 12 or 13. My mother had Toys in the Attic on vinyl. And we had an old vinyl player in our house. So I would play that and I would listen to Joe Perry and be like, that's cool. And then, you know, I, I'd hear these, like, guitar legends and be like, oh, I want to play guitar. Stevie Ray Vaughan was another big one. Um, but I had heard about Stevie Ray Vaughan through listening to John Mayer. And I always say, if you find any guy between the ages of, like, 25 to 45 in this day and age, and they don't say that they were inspired by John Mayer, I'm calling them a liar. Because the guy, he really, he gave us all a, a, a vision into guitar players that once were, right? So I remember listening to Stevie Ray listening to Texas Flood and being like, man, this is cool. Then going back and hearing B.B. King and all that. But then there was a point where I hit like 13 or 14 and I really listened to James Taylor for the first time and like actually listened. And I was like, oh, oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, and then obviously I got into like the 70s folk scene, Jackson Brown, him. I got into the Eagles. And then it was funny. So when I would go to that house as a kid and I was able to start driving myself, once you cross the Delaware Water Gap, the radio stations at the time all turned to country stations. And my dad was also a big Nickel Creek fan when they were young. And I started listening to them. They, they to this day, are one of my favorite bands. And But you would cross the Delaware Water Gap to get up there, and all the radio would just change the country. So you'd hear, you know, you'd hear George Strait, you'd hear Willie Nelson, you'd hear, you know, some Johnny Cash or whatever. And then that kind of deep dove me into the world of what country music sounded like. And um, I remember hearing Colder Weather from Zach Brown. I was driving through Gainesville, Georgia, where he's from, and I saw the sunset hitting this hill, heard that song for the first time, and it just kind of all connected. Like, you know, hearing songs that are stories made sense. And then when I listen to, you know, go back to James Taylor or whomever, I go, okay, this all kind of connected for me at one point. But then you had the entertainment factor, which was Elvis. And you had, you know, the big rattling guitarist, Steve Ray Vaughan. I said, there's a happy place for these two worlds to meet that I want to create for myself. And um, so those were a lot of, like, my musical influences. Um, when it came to people, I had, um, I had one teacher, his name's Reggie Turner, and another teacher named Kristen Lorenzetti. Uh, Reggie Turner was my middle school music teacher. Um, was the first guy to have me sing a solo, have me play piano, teach me what runs were and show me how to sing and show me the importance of music. And then Kristen was my high school music teacher. And she was the one to 
introduced me to classical music and, and stuff that was different to my ear, stuff I wouldn't have ever learned. And not that I'm like some big theory nut. I really don't. I learned it in college for a brief period and I don't remember any of it. But um, she was also the first one that introduced me to a, a coffee shop in New Jersey called Van Gogh's Ear that was the first show I ever played as a kid. I was 14. I had written two songs that sounded like shitty version of John Mayer songs. And I was like, <laughs> let's go. So I went and did an open mic at 14 years old. Her, uh, her and my family showed up and a couple of my friends and I played. And the owner of the coffee shop was this woman named Kathy at the time. And, uh, and she hired me to play a gig a week later for an hour. <laughs> I was like, I'm 14. I have two songs. What else do I do? I didn't know much more than those two songs and a handful of covers. So I just played like a half hour worth of music and I just played it over again, you know? And, uh, that was the first show I ever played for money. I, I think I made like 40 bucks and I was rich and I was like, Oh yeah, this is, and in my head, I, like I heard people applaud and I was like, Oh, this is, this is what this feels like. I had done, you know, things like musical theater as a kid and all this other stuff but I'd never understood what it meant to like play a guitar and have people clap for a song that you sang that either you wrote or you were just playing as yourself. And that was the bug. I was like, okay. Like it was one inch closer to being Elvis playing at this like funky little coffee shop. Um, but what's funny is the, one of the uh, waitresses at that coffee shop is this girl named Sarah, who is now the owner of that coffee shop years later. And she was there at the time I played my first show. I think she was 17 and I was 14 and we're still friends. I saw her, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and she still owns a coffee shop with her brother who was also working there when he was like 20 and heard me for the first time. So I've, if there's a deep root to that, you know, to that little cafe that I love. So that, it, that is awesome. So those two people, you know, Mr. Turner and Mrs. Lawrence Eddie, and then I had a college professor, um, Richard Hobson, who was integral in me realizing that playing music, he wanted me to sing opera and I studied opera for a bit, which is, you know, people ask me about that all the time. And, um, not many people, no, no one's heard me do it other than like a few select people in my life and I won't be doing it now. So there's not a, there's not a clear shot that's happening, but you know, she was the one that kind of got me into the door of playing live. And then Mr. Turner, the first one, showed me the importance of having a voice that's my own and understanding that music is more of a feeling than it is anything. And having that talk to you so young was so crucial to me moving forward and having kind of my, my stance of saying like, here's what I do. I know that I do what I do. Well, I'm not, I don't want to be anybody else because if I'm a, if I'm going to be somebody else, I'm just going to be second best. So, you know, I give him a lot of credit for, for all of that. And then her as well. And then Richard Hobson, who was my college professors. Uh, he, he just commented on something on Facebook today. And he's just a treat of a human. He was so special in terms of my learning, like getting better at being musical and listening. Um, so, yeah, in terms of like musical heroes, those are them. And then musical um, peers and teachers. Those are those are the big ones. Now, is it, did I read too that you had an album that you had made, like a little EP, and you gave it to Mr. Turner or someone oh, and he yeah, gave it yeah, to his yeah. class for feedback and you got some harsh <laughs> feedback? I'm going to drink more for this one. Yeah, so 
there was a long lesson I learned a long time ago, and I, I've, I haven't preached this lesson to many people, but I've told it to other people when they're feeling down about like living in a, um, a musical world of like everybody's kind of copying off of each other and doing things like that. So I made this EP at a guy's studio in my hometown, and it was the first time I'd ever like sang into a microphone professionally. And this guy's name, his name's Willie. And he was friends with my mother and my, and my parents. And he was kind enough to have me come in there as a kid, like 14, with this little black strap that I'd gotten off eBay. And I thought I was cool, man. I was sitting there and I was playing electric guitar and singing to a microphone. And I was singing these songs that I had written and uh, playing acoustic guitar and learning how to hear myself recording. That wasn't just me doing it on a little digital Fostex with an SD card. There's some people that are going to hear this and be like, what the fuck is that? They were SD cards. They were small and they went in this thing and you had a microphone. So um, I did this recording and I was super proud of it. And I was in high school at the time. So of course the guy, Mr. Turner, uh, I was so excited to show him because I was like, man, look at what I did. I hope you're as proud of this and as of me as I am. I was on top of the world. So I bring him the CD and I, I brought him a copy of it. And I said, here you go. And he goes, okay, cool. And I said, yeah, I think you're going to love it. And so in junior high, we had this thing called listening time. And listening time was basically, he would sit there and bust out these old cassettes and CDs, and he would give us a sheet of paper. And as kids, we would write what we thought. So we're, what, 10, 11, 12 years old. So you sit and you write. So I remember he would play us jazz, and he'd say, what does it make you feel? And he would play us classical. What does it make you feel? Play us country. What does it make you feel? And he would write down, say, this is the artist, this is the song, now write a description of what you're hearing. And I remember doing it as a kid. So he, I went back a few days later, because he had reached out to my mother, said, hey, have Matt stop in. And he goes, hey, I just want to let you know, I hope you don't mind, I played this for the kids at listening time. So I'm in, I'm, I'm a freshman, maybe a junior in high school at this point, and, uh, or a sophomore. And uh, I said, oh, no, that's great. Like, and of course, in my head, I'm thinking they're going to love it. They're going to tell me I'm the coolest thing they've ever heard. They're going to think I'm incredible. So I walk home and he hands me this stack of papers. And I walk home back to my parents' house. It's probably about you know a mile from my middle school. I start sifting through these papers. <laughs> and man, if you ever want to feel so shitty about yourself, have have ten year olds write a review about your music that at fourteen I thought I was pouring my heart and soul into, and uh, I just remember it was like, sounds like he has a frog in his throat. The guitar's too loud. I don't really understand the words he's saying. This song doesn't make sense. His voice sounds okay, but I still can't understand what he's saying. And they like just page after page of these kids ripping in to what I was doing, and I was like, oh man. And I was, I was upset. So I, I went back the next day and I said, Mr. Turner, why'd you give me these? Like, if you knew they were so bad, why would you ever hand me these papers back? And it, in his defense, in the recording, I was a kid and I, I emulated the things that I heard. I was listening to John Mayer. I was listening to Steve Rivano. I was listening to Dave Matthews. I was listening to James Taylor. And I was like, cool, I want to sound like these guys. So my voice would change. And it was really gravelly and... It's not, I was pretending like I had something wrong with my voice. 
And it is a lesson I will never forget. And it's a thing that he said to me once. And it, it rings with me every single day that I wake up and I continue to play music. And it was, and it's true. And I've really found it to be true, especially living in Nashville, where it's a town where you have a lot of people who have a, a want to play music and a drive to play music, but aren't sure about how to find their lane. And if they're figuring out like, oh, I'll do this because this is cool right now. Or if they stick to their gut and say, hey, this is who I am. Um, he looked at me that day and he was like, listen, I want to teach you something. And he was like, you're trying to sound like this guy or these groups of people. He's like, which is great. You know, you, you can, you can sound like them. You can play like them, which is awesome. He goes, but the problem is, is growing up, you are always going to be second best because you're not being yourself. So as long as you continue to sound like this person and play guitar like this person, you will always be number two because they will always be number one. Even if you get damn near close to as good as them, you will always be number two because they are number one. But if you are consistently driving yourself to be uh, yourself and authentic as yourself, and that's tough to say, like be authentic, but just be yourself and like play the things that mean the most to you, pull from your inspirations, but don't replicate your, don't like, try to be your inspiration, you know, but just play, play the things you love because you love them, but be yourself in the scenario. He's like, you will always be number one because you have a fingerprint that is yours that no one else has. But remember that if you're trying to recreate a fingerprint, somebody else already has it. So it was, and to this, I still tell that story to this day because a lot of people will ask, you know, my advice, which I don't think my advice is worth a ton quite yet, but or maybe won't ever be, I don't know. But um, when we, when I have conversations with other musicians and other friends and peers about music, I tell them that story because I'm, you know, we all struggle with this idea of being TikTok viral people or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, it's great. I'm like, but what's, what makes you happy at the end of the day? What sounds make you excited? Like for me, I love simple songs. I love hearing Willie Nelson play a gut string and I love playing a gut string and I'll play a song like his or I'll play one of his songs and sing it like myself, but it's just something that I love because I love the song. But I also want to play loud guitar because I love Jimmy Page and I want to play big, loud amps. So for me, all of those things combined create the thing that is me. But if I'm chasing after a sound that I heard on the radio, I go, well, already, there's already somebody who's great at that because they're on the radio for it. I can't chase that because they've already done it. If I try to chase that, I'm 10 steps behind. And there's probably 40 other people doing the same thing. So I'll just stick to what I'm doing. Hopefully it works at some point. Um, and I think the best reference of that is Brian Setzer from the, what was it, the Voodoo Daddies or whatever the band that was he was in, uh, or the Stray Cats. I forget the band name, uh, but it was Brian Setzer. He's a Gretsch guitar player and he was around during the grunge scene and he was in like, he was playing, he was in zoot suits and playing like swing music and like rockabilly stuff. And it wasn't cool. And I think there was an interview that he did where he, somebody was like, Hey man, you know, this stuff isn't really cool right now. He goes, but it will be. And he was right. There was a whole scene of this rockabilly thing that he really created in the nineties maybe late 80s, early 90s. So I always thought about him when I talk about the story because here's a guy who just stuck to his gun and said, I know this looks weird and I know it sounds weird right now, but there are people who will catch on because I know I'm not the only one. So it, long story, 
Yes, he gave me a stack of papers that I hope he still has because I thought it was the funniest thing to just be annihilated by like 10-year-olds and be told that I was absolute garbage. But it taught me, it taught me way more say, than I ever thought I would need to know. As I say, kids, they are brutally honest sometimes. Oh, yeah. But to, to the point, though, of, of what you're talking about, I've talked to so many folks on this show, and it's like once they find their voice through a song mm-hmm. or whatever it is, when they find their what is them, yeah. that's when they really start enjoying it. And usually that's when they really have more success. Yeah. Well, and I, that's the thing is I feel like we all look at this as work. And of course, there's the money aspect, there's the business aspect, but man, when you start having fun, and like I had fun when I was in my 20s and playing in blues trio bar bands, I would play this one bar called Butch Coles in Rawway, New Jersey, every Thursday, I played every Sunday, and we'd have drinks, we'd have a party, we'd be loud, and I was having a blast, and then when I was trying to create a career, I was miserable, because I wasn't having fun, and I'd go back to that bar, and I'd play, and I'd have the time of my life. And there was a weird transition period when I moved to Nashville in 2015. I was writing, but then I was playing with people and friends and peers that I met. And I had been here before, but when I moved here and submersed myself in a community of people, and I just started having fun playing. I was playing for other artists, and I was in sessions, and I was writing and playing for friends as a background guitar player. It just became fun. Like I learned to listen. I learned to be part of a band again. I learned to have fun performing music that I hadn't felt in a couple of years. And I think when I started doing that for myself, it just kind of clicked. And I think people saw it and then they're like, man, we're so excited watching you. And I was like, well, I'm just up there having a good time. So, and it's kind of one of those things where like when I get with the band and we're going to play a show and we have like our little huddle or whatever. And I said, listen, I don't give a shit how big or small the crowd is I was like just play loud play loud it doesn't matter like we're gonna play I'm gonna sing as loud as humanly possible and I'm gonna sing songs that I love and I'm gonna be up there with people who I really enjoy I don't care if there's 10 people outside I don't care if there's 2,000 people outside if we're having fun those 10 people will also have fun and if we're having fun those 2,000 people will have fun but just play loud and play it like the last person needs to hear it. And um, that's kind of my goal every time we go to a new show and if it's a place that I haven't been, um, especially if I'm playing acoustic and I'm playing before a band. You know, you're the guy, I always say it's a dirty job. That is a dirty job. <laughs> it's like Bear Grylls doesn't want that job, man. You're up there just a lonely acoustic guitar in front of a thousand people and you need to entertain them for the next guy to come up and do their set that everybody's there to see and you're just kind of the guy warming everybody up. But if I'm up there and I got a drink in my hand and I'm having a blast, at least the first five rows of people are having a blast with me. The back rows may not care, you know, because they're getting drunk waiting for the big show. But if I can get those first five rows to feel as good as I am, I've done my job. And I have fun and I meet them after and we have a drink together. And, you know, that just progresses my love for getting to play live. And it, you know, and then it creates a new fan, which is great. But for me, at the end of the day, it's like, they had fun. I had fun. I'm going to wind up doing this again. You know, because it's, it's like this. It's like, this will have mornings where you just, you're not having fun. But while you're doing it, you're having a great time. And then you go, ah, maybe <laughs> I will do another one tonight. You know? 
Well, you got to go back on the hair of the yeah. dog so you feel a little yeah, bit better. Yeah. You just need to level, uh, level out to zero. Get the plane back to altitude, you know? <laughs> exactly. Now, I think I read, too, where you said you never wanted to really have a plan B. Yeah. And that music was kind of always the goal. Yeah. Why, why did you want to have that thought process, too? Um, I had this idea as a kid that if I had a plan B, I would not put everything I have into doing it because I knew that there was a fail safe, right? I knew that there was a safety net. Mm-hmm. I always considered playing music like walking a, a high wire and or like a straight wire you'd see in like a carnival. And you know, if there's a net underneath, that guy's going, oh, it's okay, I'm walking it, but if I fall, I'm safe. But imagine them taking the net away. And then the guy looks down and goes, shit, if I fall, I'm dead. You know, so I looked at music in my life as that. I said, if I, if I give myself a safety net, I will always know that ah, if it doesn't work out, I could do something else. You know, I can, oh, I've got this on the background. I've got a degree and whatever. I can go do this or do this or do this. And I've had a lot of friends in the last couple of years, maybe especially the last year. I'm 35 now. And I, I have a lot of friends who have kids and are married and have careers that they've been in for 10 plus years. And a lot of them have recently reached out and been like, man, you never stopped. And I said, but I never gave myself an option to stop because what's the option? There is no option. So if I stopped, what am I doing? Um, you know, of course, there's the thought of like, I can find something to do, but everything else to me was temporary. Everything else to me was just like, it didn't matter nearly as much. So if I treated music like I was walking a tightrope and there was no safety net, there was no way I wasn't going to find a way to do it as a career in whatever facet it was. Like if I was just being a studio musician or just being a writer, I didn't care how many years it took. I just knew that it was the only thing. And it's been a lot of years of selling gear and being on your last dollar and finding weird jobs to make you a little bit of money just to get you through the next month. And, you know, even as post-COVID, when we didn't have a year to play, everybody's getting back into it and things are more expensive and and touring's tough and it's taking a toll. So people are still figuring it out. It's still a tough position to be in, especially as an artist who's just starting on their this new career touring. Um, you know, money's always tight and things are always tough, but it's like, again, if I don't give myself this, if I don't give myself the safety net, I'll pretend like it's never there and I'm going to walk that rope as best as I can. So that's kind of, I've had that thought since I was probably a teenager. It was, it was one of the reasons I looked at my parents and I was like, I don't want to go to college. <laughs> I'm like, why? And I said, cause it just doesn't make sense. It's not what I want to do. And I went for a couple of years and I dropped out and I remember I started going to California and started writing songs with people and I would make these trips out there and I would connect and and network without knowing I was networking. And over the years, when I would travel place to place, somebody who met me in LA or met me in New York or met me here had seen me. Oh, that's Matt. Yeah. Yeah. We've written together. Um, I just had a friend recently, a guy named Nathan Angelo, who's been a hard touring musician for years, lives in, I think it's North Carolina just reach out to me and, and say the same thing. He's like, man, I'm, I'm really happy for some of the success you're having. And he's like, um, I'd love to see you again. It's been, you know, probably 10, 15 years since we've gotten to see each other, but he's one of those I met years ago. So, you know, that's kind of the whole point of, if you don't give yourself a plan B, you're going to work twice as hard to make sure it works. So I kind of gave myself that rule when I was a kid. 
that's a smart rule because a lot of people always will dip their toe in but never take the full dive yeah. and, and see what can happen because they're well and that's the thing is know, like so you definitely you remember in. being a kid and going to like the public pool or like if you had a pool you're at a friend's house and you knew the water was cold and you're like i don't want to jump in i'm just mm-hmm. gonna put my foot in and see if it's cold and it's cold but then you or even the ocean or something like that i don't want to go in it's probably freezing and then there's that one friend that just balls to the wall, runs into the ocean, head first, doesn't care. And uh, and they get in, they're like, man, come in, the water's fine. And you're still sitting there putting your foot down and you know, putting the water between your hands going, oh, maybe not. And then you get in, you're like, man, this was not nearly as bad as I thought it was. But if you just run at something like that and you go head first and you just jump into the water and you go, I would rather be cold for five seconds and just be in it so I can enjoy it or I'm just going to sit here and kind of feel how cold it is for the next hour. It's just run into the water and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're going to be cold regardless. Just get it over with. So I, yeah, I feel like jumping in was the only way for me to want to do it. And it's, yeah, it's been a lot of years. I, I told a buddy the other day, my buddy Tracy, I said, man, I've been playing live music. And this is when, when I turned 34, I said, I've been playing live music for 20 years. And he goes, damn, we're old. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know? But again, it's... I, I, no, 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 but it's old. funny. I saw Lainey Wilson, <laughs> I saw Lainey Wilson do an interview and, uh, at the CMTs, and, and she was saying something to some uh, person doing the interview, and they're like, you know, you, you're, you're having all this success, and you've blown up in the last year. She goes, yeah, but we, we're not going to talk about the 12 years I lived in Nashville, and I roughed it, and the plenty of years before that that I played in my hometown. And I went, yeah, no one ever talks about those years. It's just they talk about because, of course, you just see it up front. And uh, and she's one of those. It's like, you know, she's this miraculous story of country music. She's been here for 12 years. She was here with Luke Combs when he first got here. Maybe I think longer than Luke Combs because he got here. I listened to his Joe Rogan podcast. He got here in 2014. So, I mean, look at what can happen in almost 10 years. So, but no one ever knows the story of the many bars and the many awful nights and the many bad club promoters and the, you know, I paid to play at this bar for five people who were the girlfriends of my band. You know, it's like, yeah, no one will ever remember those days, but I sure as hell remember them, you know? Well, I was going to say, I, you know, when, when you get to look back on, on your journey, because like you said, you're starting to have some, some really good success with, with Wild Horse and some some other songs that, the album and the songs that you've released what's it like when you you look back or do you even look back or get a chance to look back at it all i always i do you I get want a, to <laughs> well I, sometimes no truthfully but now there's you know there's the times that i really enjoy are and the times i really think about it there's i was talking about that one bar butch coles um this is a bar that like my grandmother's brothers went to. It was a, it was a local bar for everybody in, in my neighborhood and the, and the town that it's in, which is the neighboring town, Rahway. I grew up in a town called Linden in New Jersey, and Rahway has this bar, and it's been there for forever. Um, it used to be across the street, and then it moved, but regardless, I had uncles who went there. I've had all my friends that I went to high school went there. I played there for seven-plus years. I'll still play it once in a while when I go home. Um but what I love about that bar is every time I walk in there and I see somebody who watched me grow up in that bar, you know, 21, 22, 23, 24, and watched me go through 
the the fun years of being this fresh musician to the rough years of not knowing what the hell I was doing to the, hey, I can't be here this week because I'm in L.A. I can't be here this week. And then to the last show I played there before I moved to, to Nashville, had this big blowout. And then every once in a while, they and they catch up with me on Instagram or on Facebook. And I go there and I, I sit down and I talk to them. And they look at me and they go, man, you have no idea how proud we are. And I just kind of like, we get a drink together and they're like, it's just not many of us from here get to do what you're doing. And it reminds me of all those shitty shows. It reminds me of all those nights I spent in bad hotels in Connecticut and, and wherever in Chicago and sleeping on, I slept on pieces of foam in the corner of a room in Los Angeles just so I can get out to another writing session. And I, that was just from 21 to 27, you know? And then there was the shows I dragged bands around, different guys who I've known throughout my entire life who played for me and we would go to these weird towns and play for nobody or we'd play these cool shows and play in front of a bunch of people. And, uh, and, and it's when I sit at that bar, it is a constant reminder of all of those years. And it's one of those driving cogs in the wheel that makes me go like, cool, you didn't give yourself a plan B and you sure as shit not going to start now. So you might as well just keep going because you're having too much fun now. You're having too much fun. And again, you can, I can get stuck in the idea of like, what's everybody else doing? Am I doing enough? And then at one point I go, it doesn't matter, man. <laughs> like I've already gotten to do more than I ever thought I would. So everything now is just icing on the cake. And if I can keep doing it for another 20 years, I mean, that's a damn good cake, you know? So I feel, I feel very, and I've said this to my team and my management and my, my, my agents and, and everybody. I said, and I thank them all the time. Every time we're on the phone, they're you, you don't have to thank us. It's our job. And I said, but I do need to thank you because if you told me tomorrow that this is over, I've had a damn good time. But if you tell me I get to do this for another 20, 30 years, I'm really going to have a damn good time. You know, it's just, I guess it's like, remembering those little nights at a bar playing for one. I, actually, I, there's a video on my phone. A guy at Butch Cole sent me when I was home two weeks ago. And it was a night on a Sunday night. <laughs> I was playing acoustic and nobody was there. It was this guy, Ed, and the bartender. And there was no one in the bar that night. It was some off night. And I, instead of playing there, I just sat at the bar, grabbed a drink like this, sat with an acoustic guitar and I just played for like an hour in the bar because I wanted to. And he has videos of me playing because he sat next to me and just drank with me. And he just recorded me at the bar when there's nobody else there. And I was like, man, again, no one will ever get to see that but me. But yeah, it's like, and now I, I get to go on this tour with Whiskey Myers and I get to go play these shows and I go, man, no one remembers that seat in front of the jukebox of Butch Coles when no one was there. But me, Ed, and the bartender, you know, it's, it's a, it's, I really enjoy, I really, really do. And I get very sentimental about it because it was such a, even, even though now is a special time, those were probably the best times of my life. You know, those are good Man, times. Were, those, are, those are good times. Like you said, those are what you remember on and look mm -hmm. back on and, and, and get to share. And you touched on this, you got the tour with Whiskey Myers coming up. What's it like to get to play oh, with man. them and you know go to some cool places <laughs> so when my agent called me and they said hey what are you doing we're getting into the year 
And uh, I, I, this is a true story. I, and I said this. I was like, well, I'm on my couch getting drunk watching National Treasure 2. What are you guys doing? <laughs> you know, somebody had talked about Nicolas Cage. And I was like, man, I love National Treasure. I should probably watch these tonight. So I went through National Treasure 1. National Treasure 2 was on. And the my agent, Meredith, and uh, two guys, uh, Jacob and Chris, that worked with her, uh, called. And they were like, well, you're going on tour with Whiskey Myers. And I kind of just sat there because I was a little, I was a little buzzed, and I didn't understand what they had said at first. <laughs> and I, I had played the Firewater Festival in Kansas City with them the year prior, and it was just such a great experience to witness their fans and see how much of an impact they have. And then when they told me that I was going on tour with them, I said, "Oh shit!" And I kind of like put my head in my hand, and I, I said to myself, "I was like, what did you get yourself into?" You know, but. It's I, it's the first time I'm playing rooms that big, and I know their fans are so dedicated and, and true, and I'm really excited to get to go and meet those people. I'm excited to get to hang out with them and even the other opening acts because I'm the I think I'm the first of three, and then there's different acts that kind of play throughout the night. But a, a lot of them are friends. Like I'm doing a couple of shows with 49 Winchester. There's a guy Drayton Farley who I play with. I think Reed Southall Band. I've toured with them a little bit. Or I played opened up for them. So it's it's bands that I know and bands that I really appreciate and love. Um, and I respect a ton. So it's always gonna be a bit it's always gonna be a party. You know, and not like a crazy at a at a line party, but it's it's gonna be a <laughs> like it's gonna be man, I just get to nerd out on great music and great musicians. And for my 30, 40 minutes a night, I get to just be as loud as humanly possible in a room that is the size of something I never thought I'd like in rooms of the size of when I used to go see WWE wrestling matches as a kid. And now I'm going to be all the way at the bottom where Stone Cold used to stand. And I'm like, oh, God, what am I doing? <laughs> you know? So it's, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm excited. And it's, and it's, um, I think if I had done it at any other time in my life, I wasn't ready to do it. And I think at this point in my life, I'm pretty ready. Well, and you get to share a lot of the songs off of, of your album, debut album, Wild mm. Horse, and you released the deluxe album uh, here a couple of oh, weeks yeah. ago. Uh, what was it like being able to put that out and then putting the barrel-aged version out with a, a couple new versions and a new song? It was fun. That was So I can't take credit for the name Barrel-Aged. Uh, this was uh, my my day-to-day and label NR John, Cantu. We call him Cantu Cantu. Um, he said to me one day, he's like, I have this name for the, for the deluxe. I want to call it barrel age. And I was like, Oh, that's so good. You know, it's just, he knows me so well and he's a bourbon fan himself. So, and, uh, and it was just funny when he brought it up. I was like, man, that's such a great name. But putting out the deluxe was really, I think it was a little more important than I thought because having, so there's uh, ZZ Ward and, um, Drake White, who I'm playing with this weekend. Uh, as as features on two of the songs, and then we put out an extra song called "My Love from the Road." Um, Wild Horse, the record, was a like two to three year process with one of my great great friends, one of my dearest friends, really, Matt Odemark, who is from the band Jars of Clay, and he is I've known him since I moved into town. He has been one of my he is like family at, at this point. Um, but we did this record kind of as a passion project, not really knowing what we would do with it. And then once it got heard and kind of moved around and we 
the, this a red creative group picked it up as a label and then we started working with CAA. I, we kind of saw the impact that it had. It took me a while to actually like the record too, which is funny because I remember I, we had finished it and I was like, cool, we're done. And it was the first record that I'd ever made that I didn't like do myself. Mm-hmm. And I liked it and I thought it was cool, but I didn't love it. And, and, and I talked to him about this the, maybe about a couple of weeks ago. I said, you remember that time I texted you? It was super late. And I said, hey, I think we did something really special here. And he's like, yeah. I was like, that was the night I realized that we had done something way cooler than I had ever imagined. And it was before the record had picked it up or anything. I had just, it took, I left it for like six months. I didn't listen to it. And then um, I went back and I listened and I was like, holy shit, this is cool. This talks, this is, this is more me than anything I'd ever done. Um, so then getting to do the deluxe, having Drake on uh, work all day was just so fun. I, I wound up tracking his vocal. We went to uh, a small overdub room and um, we kind of just worked on it together. We had fun. I mean, we just sat and talked to each other. We had written a few times before uh, and gotten to know each other over COVID really because we wrote on Zoom. And then we were in the room and we just started laughing. Like, I think, I, I think Drake is one of those artists that is so infectious and so truly good at his craft. And he cares so much that when we started working on it, I was like, man, I don't know if this song should have been heard any other way than with Drake. Cause it just sounds I, like I listen to it now and I'm like, man, I don't even remember the old version of it with just me singing. I just hear it in my head with Drake. And then Zizi Ward, man, she is a sweetheart. I remember we got on the phone, we talked for a bit. She asked me great questions about like, how are you feeling when you wrote this song, Loving You, Loving Me? And um, the short story of that song is I was writing it with someone else for another band. Um, We were writing it for a band and they wound up not cutting it on the record. And I was like, man, but this song's too good to not do. So I wound up cutting it. And then when... Uh, my management was like, hey, ZZ Ward uh, wants to be on the song with you. I was like, holy shit. You know, it was one of those like, okay, yep, that's a great, you know, so I caught her on the phone for a bit. We chatted over the song and she, I think she's in LA and she sent over the parts that she did and I was just enamored. I was like, man, you just, she sounds so great and her voice is, is so uh, special. And to get to hear those two voices on my record, it was just, it was something else. And then we added one last song. It's a song I've played for years. It's called My Love From The Road. I wrote it for my nephew. Um, he, I think he was a year old. And it was, a, it was a song that I realized being that I lived in Nashville and my family's in New Jersey. I was never going to be home to teach him all these cool things that most uncles would teach their nephew. So I wanted to write a song for him that kind of explained that. And I was, I was... Uh, at the at the time, I was drinking uh, Fat Bottom Knockout IPA in these like tall boy cans. I had a day off of work. I was sitting listening to Sweet Baby James from James Taylor on vinyl, and I was like, "Well, if he could do it, so can I." You know, so I sat there, I listened to it, and I started writing this song. And I got to the chorus, and I just started crying uncontrollably. You know, I feel like once you this was before I hit thirty, but I was getting close and. I think once you hit 30, you just cry at things that don't make any uh, sense. That's true. It happens. Right? You just get emotional over <laughs> things and you're like, well, it is what it is. But, you know, I was sitting there thinking about him and 
all these things he's going to learn that I, I would love to be able to be there and teach him. And um, I sing it often, especially in smaller rooms. And I get to tell the story about how I wrote it. And it, and it resonated so much with me. There was an old recording of it, and we wound up re-recording it for this deluxe. And I was so happy that it just got to be out there and have a new life to it. So, yeah, having a, having barrel aged out has just been fun. And to have people hear these new, you know, versions of songs with some features and people who I really adore and people I appreciate. And then have one extra song that means the world to me. It was just kind of like, it was the nice cap on the bottle, no pun intended, of uh, <laughs> of just, you know, just a project that I that has been gosh, five years of just, it sat on a hard drive for a year and a half. You know, it was, it's just one of those, like a nice little ending to that chapter where now we can move on to the next record. Uh, it, it's, it's a great record. Like I said, like I said, I, I, that's how Thank I stumbled you. upon it all was, uh, mm. well, first it was runs in the family, which is, is one of the older yeah. ones that you, you've put out and then work all day. And honestly, long, <laughs> the other one, both of those were two of my favorite songs off of there. And then when the, the, the barrel age came out, I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to have to flip these out. Cause like you said, yeah. they really did. They turned out great and they added a, a new, new layer to them. And yeah. And then they're great songs. And, you know, obviously you're going out on tour with whiskey Myers, mm -hmm. well, but you know, this is only April. <laughs> There's still a lot of 2023 <laughs> yeah. left. There's still a lot uh, of what else left. can folks expect? <laughs> uh, there's a there's a new batch of songs that we finished recording right before I went to go home to see family in March. Um, we did about 13 songs. I don't know if we're going to put them out as a record or if we're going to put them out as kind of uh, just singles leading up to a record. And I know we're going to go back into the studio in August after I get off the road. So there's a lot of music coming uh, down the pipeline. There's um, I walked into the studio with 57 songs that were just songs that I, th those are the ones that I just really liked. And then we knocked it down to 37 in a day. Uh, and then we wound up with 24 and we only recorded 13. So then we're going back in August to do some more, but I think, you know, uh, especially over COVID and, and having that time, I was writing five days a week for my computer from this table. And I wound up writing some of my favorite songs right from home. And it was because I was in my safe space. I was in a place where I got to sit at 1230 in the afternoon and pop a bottle open and be like, no one's going to care. We're all doing it, you know? Um, but I, I got to really deep dive into some things with some people who, even some writers who I haven't met in person, you know, which is kind of the funny part. I met two of the writers that I wrote with over COVID in person for the first time in the last couple of months. And it was, one of them was by chance. I was in a restaurant and I was like, we haven't met each other, but we wrote this great song. It's going to be on my next record. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think in terms of that, there's a lot of fun shows coming up well into the fall. Um, and there's going to be a lot of new music. I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to have some, at least one or two new songs uh, by the time I head out on the road with Whiskey Myers, maybe a little after we start that tour. Um, and then I think we're going to kind of roll out some new music and then maybe have like a a fairly large record in the beginning of the year next year. So that's kind of, you know, the, the, the train ain't stopping and the party's just getting started. So we're just, that's why we're here. You know, that's Absolutely. why we're here. I, I, I love to hear that. And, and like I said, I, I love the records folks. Thank if you, you haven't given them a ch 
a listen, do it. You won't regret it. You're putting out some great music, and I, and I can't wait to see what's next, Matt. And thanks for sharing a drink and sharing some stories with me. Man, cheers. I'm going to give you a cheers right here. Bam, right there. Awesome, man. Dude, thank you for having me, and and, uh, and thanks for listening to me ramble on a little bit. It happens when I drink, so I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Find more from Hops and Spirits at hopspirits.com. Thanks, everybody. Bye.